Welcome to the Campus Energy and Sustainability Podcast. In each episode, we will talk with leading campus professionals, thought leaders, engineers, and innovators addressing the unique challenges and opportunities facing higher ed and corporate campuses. Our discussions will range from energy conservation and efficiency to planning and finance, from building science to social science, from energy systems to food systems. We hope you are ready to learn, share, and ultimately accelerate your institution toward solutions. I'm your host, Dave Carlscott. I'm a principal at Fovia, an energy, carbon, and business planning firm. This episode is the second part of a two-part series based on a conversation with Dr. Krista Heiser from Kapi Olani Community College, which is part of the University of Hawaii system. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, I'd recommend going back to the previous episode to hear Krista's full introduction and the broader context for this discussion. This episode picks up where we left off with a deeper dive into how we can teach sustainability concepts without devolving into green rhetoric and without falling victim to green fatigue. I hope you enjoy the second half of my February 2017 conversation with Dr. Krista Heiser. Krista, you've been talking about how to teach students about sustainability, but somewhere along the way, you've also taught professors how they should teach sustainability. And I'm assuming that's a good analogy for the work I'm doing, where I have to teach professionals on the operational side. Can you tell me more about that? Um, I can tell you about the framework that AISHI uses. Peggy Barlett and Jeff Chase uh, started doing a training. They had actually developed um, uh, similar leadership training modules separately, and then they kind of found each other and realized that that they were um, teaching this sustainability leadership for curriculum in the same way. I engaged in in that training, and there were two things that really struck me in the way they were teaching teachers to teach sustainability. Um, Because teachers, we have to do a little bit of unlearning first. We have to maintain currency in our discipline, which means we have to kind of unlearn some of our own training. Graduate school did not prepare me for sustainability. So in a sense, our current faculty, me and you and the people that you work with, you know, we were all educated in one paradigm. And now we're looking at how is this education serving us when we try to solve these problems? And what do we want to change about the way we're educating the next generations? So anyway, what Peggy and Jeff did in their model, two things that were interesting to me. One is um, that they would use that sense of place and finding some compelling problem issue um, right on your campus or in a very nearby community. It could be um, an environmental issue. I think the problem that I use there was saltwater intrusion. Some expert from the area presents this problem, and then faculty engage with that problem through their disciplinary lens. So let's say the problem was saltwater intrusion into an aquifer or something like that. If I was an art teacher or an artist, how would I engage with that? If I'm um, a communications professor, what is my role in that problem? If I'm a geologist, if I'm a doctor or nurse, if I'm um, teaching math, what's the math of that? You know, so really engaging faculty 
not from their personal values, like I was talking about before, but engaging them from their disciplinary brain, engaging them as experts in their training, um, in their disciplines. And then they start talking about it. And then they start to unlock the problem and they start to learn from each other. They start having an interdisciplinary conversation that is, for the most part, impossible to have on most college campuses. Interesting. So basically, you're using the professors in their area of expertise to go solve some other problem as a way of teaching them about sustainability? Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, because my experience, a lot of times when I interact with faculty in our work is they're the people that come in and poke holes and whatever we're talking about. You know, it's it's not necessarily, I guess that's the critical thinking as opposed to the uh, systems thinking, creative thinking. But if you can invite them in, I suppose that might be a totally different experience where they're solving the problem rather than telling you why you did it wrong. Yes. In, invite them in and engage them from their discipline. Interesting. The other thing that Peggy and Jeff did in this ACE training that was really different from most other trainings that I've been to. It's going to sound like a little thing, but it has really stuck with me the way they did this. And that is that as part of this training, it's a two, three day institute. And every day you would have to go out and the instructions were to go sit by a tree, not to have your laptop, not to start, lesson planning, but to just sit by a tree and just sit there. (laughs) And it sounds, it sounds silly, but it's not something as professionals that we ever do. And just creating that little bit of space in this professional development experience, it, it has kind of a magical impact. Do then professors end up using that same concept in their courses? How does that play out? Or is it just a matter of that's the way they need to learn? They can. I'm involved with something called the LEAP program. It's They're working on sustainability mindset. And the components of sustainability mindset in this work include um, systems intelligence and environmental literacy emotional intelligence, and uh, what they call a spiritual intelligence, which could be just that, you know, contemplative moment, contemplative moment. There's something kind of missing in our educational system when we don't include that reflective, quiet moment of stillness by a tree. So you've just given me an interesting visual in the next uh, meeting with the facilities folks I'm going to have. I'm going to make everybody go sit by a tree and see how that goes over. <laughs> but I could imagine it could actually be powerful. I'm, I'm, I need to I need to think about how to pull that off. But anyway. Well, I mean, <laughs> no, I, I encourage you actually to think about that. It creates a different tone for the types of meetings that I engage in. You know, we like to come into a conference room with our agenda and, you know, we just start running through the topics. And, you know, I dare you to start that meeting with just a moment of silence or 30 seconds of silence, you know, or three deep breaths. 
<laughs> no, that's good. I, I, I accept the challenge. I'll have to find the right opportunity for it, and I'll tell you how it goes. All right, I wanted to bring up the work of Leith Sharp out of Harvard, who I know our mutual friend Matt has done some work with her, and he's the one that introduced me to you, or you to me. And she talks about the concept of the dual operating system. Have you, <laughs> you're familiar with that? Uh, yeah, the dual operating system is just an awesome articulation of what a college campus is like. Because a college campus is, is extremely hierarchical and everybody knows exactly where they are on the org chart and within the hierarchy. And um, what Leith Sharp is saying is that rather than being frustrated with that hierarchy, what she calls the command control system, rather than being frustrated that we learn how to leverage its power. The power of command control system is that a decision can be made, a policy can be written, uh, purchasing um, procedures can be crafted and decided you know, at the top of the hierarchy, and then they create change. So it's a very powerful um, thing, the command control system. And then the other piece, the new piece, the piece where, where I get engaged and get excited is the dual operating system. And if you see her diagram, it's like the dual operating system is is like pulling out a little cluster of people. So let's say you want to um, change energy behavior on campus. You want people to turn off the lights. The dual operating system knows how to pull out the right people for that task, right? So you get, obviously, your energy manager and your engineer and maybe your janitor and maybe um, a communications professor and a graphic designer who's going to make signs. You know, you know who the people are in your organization and you know how to activate them to complete this task. You know, they come together, they work on this thing, then they go back to what they normally do, right? Yeah, when I was introduced to the concept, a lot of light bulbs went off for me because I had been experiencing the frustration of, you know, trying to get uh, the large hierarchical system to work. Um, but working in, in the work we're doing, we're, you know, a lot of times it's climate action planning or energy master planning or something like that, where you're trying to say, how can we change the future trajectory of what's going on? And by its nature, it's change. And so, I really liked her model of how describing it and why it was hard and how, you know, like you were talking about earlier of these giant leaps that if you can get the right person to make the right decision at the right time and give them an idea that's been, I think she uses the term de-risked, which I like a lot, mm -hmm. uh, that you can you know, all of a sudden make a breakthrough where before you weren't able to. Uh, the other concept that I really liked from her was the, the concept of the, she calls it the squiggle, which is, you know, we tell these linear stories about how things get done. And, on you know, you'll read about them in the alumni magazine, but you don't necessarily see all of the pain and agony that went into getting to that point. That's right. That's right. So I really, I appreciated that. The squiggle. <laughs> the squiggle, yeah. Peggy, Peggy and Jeff uh, wrote a book called Sustainability on Campus. 
And uh, what was interesting about that, the first book was all narratives of campus change, telling the story of those squiggles, really. And then they wrote a second volume and asked if I want to contribute something. And at the time, the most innovative program that I could think of on our campus at, at Kapiolani Community College was a professional development program that we had designed around communities of practice theory and around adult learning theory, which is called andragogy. If adult wants to learn something, you want to get better at something, adults will seek out other people who either want to learn the same thing or maybe know a little bit more about it and say, oh, hey, can you help me get better at this thing? And uh, a pair or a trio or a small group uh, will form, and they'll work together, they'll teach each other, they form a community of practice until they accomplish a specific task or until they reach their mutual goal for shared learning. This is how adults learn. They learn together, they learn in community. And so that communities of practice theory, I think, is another aspect of the dual operating system. You know, a community of practice can come together around campus sustainability issues and address them and work together to to help them move. And then they dissolve. You know, it's not the same as being on a committee or a task force or another like assignment that can just go on and on forever. It's not your job forever. It's about energizing a particular node on the organiza organizational network in order to um, do something very specific. Interesting. So it's like a bunch of jazz musicians getting together for a jam session, but they're not necessarily going on tour together. Exactly. That's great. That's a great metaphor. <laughs> Excellent. Well, after my deep breath or my uh, moment of silence at my next meeting, we're going to break out into <laughs> trios and quartets. And <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I've heard, too, that you have even new term in Hawaiian now. I remember seeing this in one of your earlier webinars. Can you explain that? I thought that was a great story. Mm. Yes. In we, we are really seeking to learn about indigenous wisdom. Um, there's a lot of talk about the role of indigenous wisdom, um, especially, especially now. Um, a lot of people are following like standing rock and talking about um, indigenous wisdom and this meeting of wisdoms. So, um, our university president actually brought together um, uh, several groups from across our whole university system. And it was our STEM faculty, our, um, some of our Hawaiian studies faculty, the sustainability people, and the Polynesian Voyaging Society. Um, and he kind of brought us together and he said, he said, you're all talking kind of about the same thing, you know, can you, can you get on the same page? Um, and that was really a pivotal conversation for me in really thinking about how are we on the same page. So it was at this meeting um, that this new word in the Hawaiian lexicon was presented. So Hawaiian is a living language. And 
occasionally, I understand it's rather rare, but occasionally they um, create or coin a new word in the lexicon. So in Hawaiian culture, there was no word for sustainability um, because sustainability was integrated into the culture. As Matt Lynch will sometimes put it, in ancient Hawaii, you were sustainable or you were dead because you were on an <laughs> island and no Costco and no food was coming. So, so there was no word for this. The social structures around environmental management were deeply embedded in Hawaiian culture, embedded in their, the spiritual culture. Um, so there was no need for a word like sustainability. But the Hawaiian Lexicon Committee now, they say it is very important that we distinguish what is sustainable and what is not. And so the word that they presented um, at this meeting, uh, the word is mawo. Mawo. And mawo is created by combining two words. One is uh, well-being and o is the perpetuation. So the word mawo translates into the perpetuation of our well-being. Yeah, I thought that was interesting because it's sustainability really has a connotation of being not quite dead, <laughs> like you're barely alive, like you're sustaining yourself, but right. you're not really thriving. So the right. perpetuation is that I like of well-being. I like that. It really changes the 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 tenor of the conversations that you have. Um, sustainability can be um, a, an uncomfortable conversation, but who doesn't want to perpetuate our well-being? And so it's a wonderful word. I haven't heard it a lot in um, common parlance in Hawaii, uh, but we definitely use it in the um, UH Office of Sustainability and find it a really inspiring word that that gives us a, a really important kind of common common goal and mission. Mawo. No, it's interesting how much language does influence the way we think about things. When I first started working in this area, it was about mitigating carbon. Somewhere along the way, I learned the term decarbonization, which I don't think mm -hmm. used to be used, but I like mm -hmm. that a lot better. And then I've, I, you know, I was taking some courses through um, Columbia Continuing. I had courses with Jeffrey Sachs, and he uses the term deep decarbonization, which mm. kind of really goes for it. You know, it's like a full transformation. Uh, mm. But it's, a, it's more of a process as opposed to just mitigation, which is like getting rid of asbestos from your building or something like that. So it's cool that you have a committee that can create new language, you know, new words. It's like an anti-Orwellian committee or something like that. So <laughs> instead of alternative facts, you get Mao. That's yeah. awesome. I like that term decarbonization. I've also seen a lot more use of the term resilience or sustainability and resilience. And with resilience, you have adaptive resilience, you know, not just how do we bounce back from a storm event or something like that, but how do we prepare for it in a way that we adapt and do things differently and maybe even do things better. Right. Yeah. So more of the Dutch version of dealing with flooding rather than the giant seawall version of dealing with flooding. Yeah, exactly. Good. So, Krista, where are you going next with this work? I mean, what's your next big project? Well, we're going to continue talking with faculty and um, formalizing these S designation courses. We identified as our baseline measure 206 courses 
across the University of Hawaii system. That means that there are 206 more that we just haven't engaged with. And that whole process is starting to really have its own life and its own energy because it's faculty talking to each other about how they're teaching and what they're teaching. Um, so I'm going to, you know, continue engaging and, and managing that process. And then in my personal work, I'm really excited about replicating uh, the focus group study that I did with students. And I learned so much from just sitting down with groups of students and getting them to talk about environmental issues and their future and what they were learning and what they knew about it and how they felt about it and how it affected and impacted their future. So we're going to go out and do another round of focus group study um, with students across the system. The original study that I did uh, was in 2012. The students, what I was talking to them about is like, what do they think about sustainability? How engaged are they with sustainability? And then what are their actual personal practices? This, again, that cognitive dissonance came out again. Sort of one category of students would say that they were interested in sustainability. Oh, yeah, I really care about the environment. But when it came down to it, they really weren't interested in changing their transportation or the way they eat or the way they fly. Um, they would say one thing, but not really do it. And that's another kind of manifestation of that cognitive dissonance we've been talking about. Another category of student we call the students with the sustainability habitus. These are the students that define their identity around sustainability. They're the president of the ecology club. They wear clothing made out of bamboo. They carry chopstick kit or refillable mug, water bottle, you know, activist kind of students who define their identity around sustainability. Unfortunately, there's actually in, in the study that I did, there were fewer, maybe fewer of these students than we think. They're just very visible, those students with the sustainability habitus. By far, the most common category of um, students when they were talking about, they, they said these comments that really, really got my attention. And um, I called this category karmic retribution. And what these students was, were saying, they would say things like, well, you know, nature's going to do what nature's going to do. Well... I suppose we've got it coming, you know, this kind of really um, defeatist feeling and this sense that somehow we, we would deserve it um, because of what we had done as humans, because of what we had wrought upon the environment, that, that there would be this karmic retribution from nature and she's coming to get us. It's almost like a, a medieval reaction to the plague or something. That's interesting. <laughs> It was a very um, profound sense that I got from multiple focus groups of students. So I'm very interested to see if, if that um, sense of karmic retribution is still out there. So if you think about a generation of leaders coming up with the sense of karmic retribution and almost this self-loathing, that's very concerning and a little bit scary. Honestly, I see that even with my own daughter. Um, she's 10. 
And her school does a lot of sustainability education. She knows about climate change. She's very savvy and she's very engaged. But she'll say things like, you know, she'll she'll even start to cry. And she'll say, Mom, all the people are so bad. We have to shut down the factories. We have to save the plants and all this. And she'll get she'll get very upset. And she doesn't she's not making the connection that that we are part of those factories that we are driving a car, that the food we're eating is created by this system that is causing the environmental impacts that she's lamenting. It's almost like the guilt without the responsibility. Um, kind of. This is, this is what um, Timothy Morton calls dark ecology, the complexity of the fact that like, if I go out and I start my car, I'm contributing to climate change, but not at that moment. That that ignition, my trip to the grocery store did not cause climate change. And yet, as a member of my broader species, I am causing climate change. So we are causing it, but not directly causing it. Timothy Morton calls that dark ecology. So it's a similar effect, and I'm just really interested in in where that goes, and if that exists, this dark ecology or sense of karmic retribution, um, how does that inform what what we do next? Yeah, do you have any ideas on on how to address that? Because that seems like, that does seem very dangerous. I know my daughter went to a, um, it was like a tree planting organization, and she went, and they Basically, half of it was planting trees and half of it was learning about how to talk about climate change. But the learning Mm -hmm. to talk about climate change was all about telling the story from a kid's perspective about how Florida is going to be underwater and how the polar bears are all going to die. It was really bleak. And she was really young. And by the end of the day, I mean, combination of her just being really tired. But after living through a day of just this really doomsday kind of scenario, I mean, she, she totally broke down and we just had to go home. And wow. I it didn't feel good to me either. I didn't like kind of the approach they were taking. I think they had their heart in the right place, but it, it you know it kind of went off the rails. Yeah. yeah. What do you do about that? Well, well, coming back to like my own classroom and teaching communication and particularly climate change um, communication and rhetoric, there's some really interesting work around that right now. I actually tell my students not to use pictures of children, like do not use the pathos of like, oh, do it for the children. You know, pathos is a term from rhetoric um, for when you you call upon the audience's needs or concerns or fears. You know, you engage them through pathos. I tell them no children, no polar bears. And I say no green rhetoric. We can't we cannot engage in this green rhetoric. Um, We have to talk about facts. You know, you have to use real facts. Even just talking about climate change impacts is too, there's too much room, especially right now, there's too much room inside of that. Rather than talking about climate change impacts, we talk about something very specific like four feet of sea level rise. You know, you need to find out the facts and what are we really talking about? What are the facts? The other kind of um, interesting work around climate change communication is how how can you talk about climate change without talking about climate change? 
Right. That's where it's really at. So, for example, I had my students do this activity where I said, okay, what's a change you'd like to see on campus? And um, one, one student had, had a great idea. He said, he said, you know, people sit out in the parking lot with their, um, with their engines idling. And I wonder how much carbon they're producing by doing that for 20 minutes, sitting in their car, running the air conditioning. And I said, wow, that'd be a great thing to change. So then I asked my students to imagine um, going out into the parking lot with signs that say, no idling your car, save the planet, stop idling your car, you are causing climate change. You know, I, I asked them to imagine and the look of horror on their faces. They're like, oh, my God, Dr. Heiser, you're not going to make us do that. Like they thought that I was, right? We're already sweaty from taking out the recycling. <laughs> That was 20 years ago. Taking that. <laughs> so then we work backwards on this on this idea. There's how tos about how to do this, how to talk about climate change without talking about climate change, using specific facts, using a identifiable sort of spokesperson, telling a story, and not using climate change as in in what you're talking about. So we went through this whole exercise and revised the statement. And so then instead of, uh, you know, marching with signs, stop idling your car, we came up with this article with the student Congress president saying, you know, hi, when I first moved here, can you believe I didn't know anybody? And I used to sit in my car waiting for my class to begin. But then I realized that I could study um, at the study center and my grades went up and I made friends and got elected student council president. You know, so we really turned it around into a positive reason why you would do something else. Instead of not doing the thing that you should stop doing, making it positive to do the thing that you could do instead. Got it. So instead of shaming people, you just make that whole behavior irrelevant. It just doesn't even matter. Yes. Transportation is kind of going through a transformation like that. You can yes. just take Uber and if Uber was run by an electric vehicle, for example, it yes. doesn't, you don't deal, you don't even have to drive and you're doing it not because you care about gas, you're doing it or uh, emissions, you're doing it because it's more convenient. Right. And yeah, yeah and, and it's cool. Right. Uh, yeah. So I think that's where it's at. I think that this personal incremental change, I certainly can't say that it's, you know, not important for me to bring a tote bag to the grocery store or for me to, you know, recycle at home. Those personal choices are, they do have impact and they are important, but that's not where we should be meeting students right now. That whole every little bit, you can make a difference. The Lorax message. It's, um, it's really not working. It's kind of shallow and yeah, frustrating. It's not working because is not working, right? They still don't really see it. If you're carrying a water bottle around and the campus is still selling bottles of cold water in plastic bottles, then the incremental change has not affected. You know what I mean? It comes right. back to that cognitive dissonance. So the behavior has to then be reflected back in the broader system, whether it's a campus or the community or the country or you know global policies we that loop has to come back well that's really great i 
give me a lot to think about here. And this has been a fascinating conversation, I think, for anybody that's working in these areas of sustainability, or I'm going to call it thrivability or Mao from now on. So, all right. <laughs> this has been a lot to, to think about. Any final thoughts as we close up this episode? I think what stands out for me about this conversation is I'm in a position where I'm talking with really, really, really smart people all day long about these issues of sustainability, thrivability, the perpetuation of well-being, and how our institutions in our work, college campuses, how do we navigate this change and prepare students for an uncertain future? And we are we're like levers, you know, between some generational points. And, you know, we're teaching things that we weren't taught. We're educating in a way that we weren't educated. So we're really like a, a transitional type of work right now. And if the work works, then we don't need sustainability. If we do a good job, then we don't need to have sustainability designated courses or degrees in sustainability. If we do a good job, then we make it through this change. So I think that just as a closing thought, how do we um, survive and thrive in change? You know, we have to, I think, making connections with each other and, and people outside of, of the work that you normally do, you know, like on campuses when, the faculty engage with the facilities director. That's really, really helpful. And then what is the nature of that engagement? If people can talk about, you know, well, what got you interested in this? Talk about that aha moment or have a, a shared experience of reflection or, or, or really connect about where they're coming from and what their expertise is. What do they have to contribute to the problem? You know, the more we connect with each other, um, it becomes more exciting and we can go from those, you know, little incremental baby steps and just believe that those leaps will happen if we keep working together. Well, that's a great place to end. I like that. We all need more hope in this world, I think. <laughs> so where can we learn more about the specific work you're doing, you know, just websites or uh, other resources you want to point our listeners to? Um, we have a lot of great resources on our University of Hawaii System Sustainability page, which is www.hawaii.edu backslash sustainability. And if you can cruise around there, there's some specifics. We actually have an implementation handbook for our S designation program. We're really happy to share that with um, other colleges and also learn from how other colleges are um, engaging with curricular transformation. We also have up there some PowerPoints, presentations from some of our faculty who really talk with us about what do we need to understand about climate change impacts in Hawaii, food security impacts in Hawaii. And those are under programs on our website. And then another website that I contribute to is called Teaching to Big Questions. And it's all spelled out, teachingtobigquestions.wordpress.com. 
And this website is from a national grant project that I was part of with six community colleges engaging with the big question. And the big question was, how do we build our commitment to diverse, healthy, equitable, and sustainable communities? So, you know, that really is the big question. This really is the big work. Um, So that website, Teaching to Big Questions, has uh, different colleges talking about these issues um, in their own geographic place and how they're creating curriculum around around those big questions. Excellent. Well, we will get all of those listed in our show notes so that people can uh, link to them straight from there. I'll also give you a list of the five or six books that I might have mentioned. And there's so much there's so much out there. There's so much interesting um, research and scholarship and thinking going on. And I'd be happy to share a few um, few of the things I'm reading right now. That would be great. I'll be sure to put all of that into the show notes. Well, Krista, I really want to thank you again for being on the show today. This has been fascinating conversation. Uh, I feel like I've been on quite the journey today. Eve, I really enjoyed talking with you. And um, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And anybody that listens to a podcast like this, uh, I think part of it is just like, it's so cool that other people are interested you know, in really thinking deeply about what it is that we're doing here with campus sustainability. Excellent. Well, thanks again. Thank you. That's it for this episode. As always, you can learn more in the show notes and the podcast website at campusenergypodcast.com. Please let us know what you think by sending us an email. Our email address is feedback at campusenergypodcast.com. Catch you next time.